Welcome to the Shop of Freaks podcast, where each week I highlight the most important happenings in the e-commerce industry. I'm your host, Paul Drexler. If you like this podcast, then you'll love my written newsletter, which you can subscribe to at shopoffreaks.com. This podcast and my newsletter are geared towards e-commerce industry professionals. My readers include executives, developers, journalists, investors, and of course, e-commerce merchants who like to stay on top of the industry as a whole. Let's dive into this week's top stories following Cyber Shopping Week. Was it a record-breaking holiday shopping week or not? It certainly was for some companies and some platforms, but globally, not so much. I had reported last week that Shopify merchants collectively generated $6.3 billion worldwide during Black Friday and Cyber Monday weekend. That was now, of course, we're talking about GMV, gross merchandise value, which is the total amount sold from uh, all the different merchants on Shopify's platform. So going to uh, 6.3 GMV, billion GMV was an increase of 23% compared to last year's 5.1 billion sold during that same time span. Big Commerce also reported a 15% increase in total GMV compared to last year. So this was big years for Shopify and Big Commerce, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the amount of money that folks were shopping, the amount the amount of spend that each individual consumer was doing online was more than last year. It just means that Shopify and Big Commerce both had tremendous years in terms of growth. They both added a lot of new merchants over the past 18 months. And it makes sense that those new merchants leads to an increase in, in sales on their platform. However, what we had learned is that that growth was not across the board. And for the first time ever, online sales dipped this year during the shopping week. Now, it wasn't by much, but the reason why this news is substantial is because this is the first time in possibly ever, at least in the last 10 or 15 years, that the amount of GMV sold over Cyber Week online decreased. Normally, they had been seeing substantial increase, double-digit increase year after year. So to give you some actual numbers to compare to, this year, U.S. consumers spent $10.7 billion on Cyber Monday, which is down from $10.8 billion last year. U.S. consumers spent $8.9 billion this year on Black Friday, down from $9.0 billion in 2020. So again, 10.7 versus 10.8, 8.9 versus 9.0. We're not talking about a, a huge dip here. However, the reason, like I said, why the news is substantial is it's the first time there's ever been any dip. Does this mean that online sales have plateaued? Have we reached a point where Americans have a healthy balance between what they like to shop online and what they prefer to shop in person? And we're not going to be seeing those extreme uh increases year after year of online sales have we reached the pinnacle and now we're just going to have a little bit of growth every single year or are there other factors at play and folks were just spending less money this year than they were before well i'll go ahead and answer that question and say no that's not the case consumers are actually spending a lot more when you <laughs> look at look at online sales in a little bit bigger picture than just this week this was the first year that that uh sales during Black Friday to Cyber Monday decreased a little bit, but when you zoom out a little bit and you look at sales over the course of the month of November as a whole, November 1st to November 29th, consumers spent 11.9% more during the same period than they did last year. This year, consumers spent 
109.8 billion online, which again is an almost 12% increase over last year's total for the same period. So in other words, folks are spending more online than ever before, still double digit growth. They're just spending less during that shopping week. And it makes sense. How many emails did you receive this year? I, I know you received at least 2,000 emails from companies. So aside from that, how many within those 2,000 emails did you receive were something along the lines of, we're starting our Black Friday deals early this year, or a week later, we're extending our Black Friday deals. I got a ton of them. So I think <laughs> this cyber week, shopping week is turning into shopping month as companies are trying to get ahead of other companies with their promotions or extend it and get behind the other companies and their promotions. It's honestly getting out of control. And I think a lot of uh, consumers are realizing that the, the sales and the deals that happen during Cyber Week aren't that special anyway. We don't, we're not the sheep we used to be in terms of brick and mortar retail. We don't need to line up at Target to get Tickle Me Elmo dolls you know, on, on sale or, or get that TV on sale. We're just more savvy consumers than we were before because we've got the online tools in our arsenal to be better shoppers. Now we can look at something like Camel, Camel, Camel and realize that, hey, this TV that's supposedly 15% off right now, this isn't even the best price that this TV has, has sold for this, this year, in the past year, let alone this past three months. And so with, with that being said, consumers are definitely spending more, as you can tell. But we are just less reliant on that week to find good deals because we're doing it all year round. I'm going to be curious to see the final numbers that come in for this year's holiday season. That was numbers provided by Adobe from the month of November. But obviously the shopping continues into December. So once I get that information for the start of the new year, I will certainly report it. Next up, Shopify is being sued by five textbook publishing companies. Those textbook publishers include... Pearson Education, Macmillan Learning, Cengage Learning, Elsevier, and McGraw-Hill. I've heard of three of those before. Um, I think everyone listening to this is familiar from our, our college days or high school days with, with at least a few of those companies, depending on what region of the, of the country you're from. Now, this textbook mafia, I was very proud of that. that that's, that's what I... My, the coin, the name that I coined for these guys, the textbook mafia. The textbook mafia are suing Shopify for allowing the sale of pirated textbooks and test materials on their platform and failing to remove the listings and the stores that violate the publisher's trademarks and copyrights. Now, obviously, uh, getting rid of counterfeit goods online on any platform is an ongoing challenge. Shopify, however, says they have multiple teams that handle violations like that, including copyright and trademark infringement, and that they don't hesitate to action stores when they find them in violation. Action stores could mean a warning, removing a certain product, or of course just removing the seller or the entire store from their platform. They said that in 2021, over 90% of copyright and trademark reports were reviewed within one business day. But that's not the story that the textbook mafia is, is, is telling. They say that for the past several years, They've sent detailed notices to Shopify almost every week, but that Shopify failed to take action and block the sellers from their platform. And that by doing so, this furthered Shopify's business model, who obviously earns from having the subscriptions of those sellers running their stores and also from the transaction fees uh, from the 
GMV that is sold through those businesses, uh, and that this was good for Shopify, but essentially bad for the publisher's bottom line. So they are suing for statutory damages of 150000 per infringed copyright and $2 million for each counterfeited trademark. And they listed 3,400 copyrights that users allegedly violated. So this is really a, a half a billion dollar plus lawsuit that is that is coming about. Textbook publishers aren't exactly the most popular companies in the court of public opinion. I think most college kids have stories that they can tell about having to buy textbooks that they never actually use in the classroom or wanting to buy a used version of the textbook to save some money only to have the professor or the textbook company say, well, that was last year's edition. You need this year's edition. So there are no used copies. I mean, textbook companies are just notorious for unscrupulous tactics like that right there to get folks to spend as, as much as humanly possible. The game is changing for textbook companies in general. And so I'm curious whether this lawsuit has, has legs to stand on or if this lawsuit is just basically these companies grasping at straws because they've taken such a hit over the past few years for their income. I don't have the answer to that. But I will keep you in the loop about this case as I get more information in the future. I do think it would be quite hilarious if the judge dismissed the case completely and said, well, technically, those textbooks that were being sold on Shopify's platform were outdated editions being sold from last year. So the latest editions are required for this lawsuit. I'm, I'm kidding, obviously, but we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And like I said, I'll keep you in the loop about anything that comes out, because not only is this a big deal for the textbook industry, and obviously it would be a big hit for Shopify if the textbook mafia was awarded anywhere even near that. that that's a, a large amount of money on their books. But a lawsuit this size also sets a precedent for copyright and trademark infringement on platforms like Shopify and big commerce. And these textbook companies certainly have the, the legal teams and the financial backing to see it through. And so it'll be interesting for, for that reason to see what comes about from this case, because if they were to win the textbook mafia, if they were to win, that would certainly be a case that's um, referenced often moving forward in, in similar cases against platforms. Let's move on to our third story, a story with a different tune. You'll understand my pun momentarily. This week's uh, third story is hashtag Spotify Wrapped is incorporating merch this year. Now, I wasn't honestly familiar with Spotify Wrapped. I had to look up and see what that was because I'm not a big Spotify user. I think it's a great platform. I just um, don't really use it enough. I've got a YouTube playlist that I, I save all my favorite random songs on. And I, uh, I don't end up using Spotify to listen to music probably as much as I should because I could, um, what, pay 10 bucks a month for Spotify Premium and avoid uh, all those uh, commercials that pop up in the, middle of, in the middle of songs and concerts on YouTube. It's, it's quite frustrating. So maybe after this, I'll look into more into, into getting Spotify again. It's been years. But anyhow, Spotify Wrapped is an annual tradition on Spotify where users share their top songs and other stats under the hashtag Spotify wrapped. So wrapped is a feature that once a year in December, Spotify shows you a slideshow of the top 100 songs and artists you've listened to the most over the past year, what new music you've discovered, and an exact count of how many minutes you've spent listening to music. Like I said, it's every December they launch this just in time for you to share it with their friends. Great idea. 
great viral marketing strategy, and they're certainly keeping it up year after year because it's quite popular. I think people look forward to it at this point. I, I certainly would if I was on Spotify. I like seeing stats. I really love on the Google Maps, even though it's in, incredibly invasive into my, my privacy, it's still interesting to see, you know, here's where you've been. And then it shows my map of, of jumping around jumping around the world from country to country It's um or, or throughout the city and stuff like that every month. That's Stuff like that is interesting, seeing a recap where... where um, we're all definitely egocentric people, and and looking at stats about ourselves is a, is an interesting thing to see. So that's why I think um it's been so popular. Well, here's the news about this. So this has been going on for many years. I think this is the sixth year, fifth or sixth year of Spotify Wrapped. But the reason why it's news is because that this year, it's the first time they're incorporating merch sales into their promotion. A few weeks ago, I had reported that Shopify and Spotify linked up to allow artists on their platform to list merchandise for sale directly on their profiles. Well, after that news, after that integration, they didn't waste any time at all in leveraging that new integration. So for the first time, like I said, merch opportunities are being incorporated into the wrapped rollout in this way. When Spotify sends out the email to their customers, which lists their top artists and top songs and whatnot, they're also going to be linking to the virtual stores on the platform. So if the artist has merch for sale, they will be linking to that uh, within within the emails um, so that people can buy stuff, which is obviously good for their bottom line because they're getting a, a piece of that interaction, that piece of that transaction. Brendan Cody, the Associate Director for Creator Growth and Programs at Spotify, told Newsweek, quote, artists and fans take the opportunity to thank each other for the year and they have these really beautiful interactions on social media. This is just a continuation of that. You'll be able to support your favorite artists on Spotify in a way that goes beyond simply listening to their music, end quote. Now, although personally I, I hate the idea of every streaming service and social network becoming QVC, I do support musicians and creators earning more from their work, and I hope that this merch initiative with Spotify helps accomplish that. Let's move on to our fourth story. Square renames itself Block. Jack Dorsey couldn't let Mark Zuckerberg get all the rebrand attention this year, and effective December 10th, Square, the corporation Square, not the product Square, is renaming its company Block as it focuses on technology such as blockchain and expands beyond its original credit card reader business. It will still trade under SQ on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Dorsey said in a statement, quote, We built the Square brand for our seller business, which is where it belongs. Block is a new name, but our purpose of economic empowerment remains the same. No matter how we grow or change, we will continue to build tools to help increase access to the economy, end quote. As part of their rebrand, Square Crypto, which is a separate part of the company focused on Bitcoin projects, will change its name to Spiral, but Square, the cash register and, and, and reader, cash app, title, and <laughs> TBD 54566975 will continue to remain their respective brands. So kind of like how the Facebook parent company became Meta recently, but Facebook remained Facebook and WhatsApp remained WhatsApp, or how the Google parent company behind Google became Alphabet, but Google remained Google. That's what's happening here. The larger company is, is Block but the uh, product is still going to be called Square in the same way that Google continued to be called Google. Uh, the company divulged their reason for the name change. Quote, Block in a statement, 
The block, the name block has many associated meanings for the company. Building blocks, neighborhood blocks, new kids on the block. I'm just kidding. I added that part. And their local businesses. Communities coming together at block parties full of music, a blockchain, a section of code, and obstacles to overcome. End quote. So that's that's that. I guess we'll be referring to them as block from now on. Jack Dorsey, Dorsey certainly wasted no time in making headlines after he left Twitter as CEO, left, stepped down from uh, Twitter as CEO and joined Block full-time, dedicated all of his attention to Block. They were certainly uh, not, not slow to make headline news. Let's move on. Our fifth story of the week, Alibaba is reorganizing. Alibaba Holdings Group announced that it'll be reorganizing its international domestic e-commerce business and appointing a new CFO. The company will form two units to house its main e-commerce business, an international digital commerce, which will include USA and Europe, and a China digital commerce. The international division will house Alibaba's overseas consumer-facing and wholesale business. So this includes brands you're familiar with, AliExpress, Alibaba.com, Lazada. Um, the company's CFO, Toby Zhu, will succeed Maggie Wu as CFO beginning in April 2022. And these changes are following problems that Alibaba has experienced this past year with increased competition, a slowing economy, and regulatory crackdown in China. Um, I'm wondering if splitting up into these two divisions is a segue to eventually splitting off from China altogether and just having two separate brands, one of them owned within China's borders and one of them owned completely separately outside of China's borders. I'm completely speculating here. I've read nothing that'll support that theory, but it certainly makes sense to not have all your eggs in the Chinese basket. Now, speaking of huge international companies, Nestle has announced that they are doubling down on e-commerce. Nestle's e-commerce, which includes direct-to-consumer and also business-to-business direct-to-consumer represents about 13% or 11.93 billion of the company's total annual sales. However, in four years, they have ambitions for e-commerce to account for 25% of all its sales. Their plans to get there are to invest more in digital marketing and data anal analysis, including increasing the amount they spend on digital marketing from 47% of the marketing budget to 70% in four years. They will also increase consumer data records from 250 million to 400 million. And what what they mean by that is, you know, every customer engagement that they have on their platform, customer support issue, they they track this all. Every time they're mentioned on social media, they track this. So apparently they're going to be tracking a lot more of the conversation around the name brand Nestle and all their subsidiary brands and and Nate and and name brands uh, for next year. So the reason why that's interesting to me is to learn how much emphasis and resources that an international company like Nestle will be placing in e-commerce over the next few years. Obviously, everybody listening to this podcast already understands that e-commerce is huge here to stay and should be an important part of every company's business model moving forward. But it's interesting to see statistics or quantifiably how much more large companies like Nestle are going to be putting into their, their e-commerce sectors moving forward. Now, that was my top stories of the week. The next section that I always do is other e-commerce news of interest. These are just um, quick headlines that I wanted to share with you. 
Number one, Engine Capital LP, a U.S. hedge fund, is urging Kohl's to consider a sale of the company or a separation of its e-commerce business for the purpose of improving the share price. You might remember over the past few weeks, I've been talking about Saks Fifth Avenue having split up their online and offline business models. And after they did that, investors started pressuring Macy's and Kohl's to do the same. Following the split, Macy's had hired a firm called Alex Partners, which is the firm behind the Saks spinoff. And now investors are urging Kohl's to do the same. I think Engine Capital LP owns about 1% of Kohl's, so they're putting on some pressure because they want to see a greater return. And that's what this whole split off is all about. Um, investors want companies to split between their e-commerce and their offline sales because they look at traditional brick and mortar retail as as holding back the multiplier that tech companies or online companies get to experience on the market. So the idea is that if the online division, the e-commerce division of these brands were separate from the offline division, then the e-commerce side of it would get to be considered a tech company and get to trade at tech multipliers. Personally, I think that these split-offs are just completely short-sighted, not a good move for any of these businesses as the rest of the world is moving towards omni-channel and looking for ways to integrate online and offline sales. You've got these huge department stores that could have been years ahead of the curve in terms of integrating their online and offline. And now instead, in 2021, almost 2022, they're looking to split up. It's it's dumb, frankly. I don't, I don't get it. And like I said, it's short-sighted, all about that investor's dollars in the short term. These are not good moves for the long term. But maybe I'll be proved wrong or right. That's how that's how speculating goes. Story number two, eBay has publicly expressed their fears that new tax reporting laws, which require it to report all annual sales over $600 next year, is going to curb casual selling. And they're bringing these concerns to Congress. The company believes that the new legislation will cause confusion and over-reporting of non-taxable income, as well as privacy concerns for Americans. I mean, sarcastically, I'll say that's certainly lovely of eBay to have our backs and fight for the rights and the privacy of American consumers. But really, it just comes down to eBay is scared that these new tax reporting laws are going to be so complex for small sellers that the sellers are just not going to want to deal with it and they're not going to sell on eBay's platform and they'll jump ship like they probably already have in a lot of ways too, like Facebook Marketplace or or uh, what's that other app called that I used to use, Upsell, um, or just different different platforms that they can get paid in, in cash and they don't have to report that stuff, even though they technically do. I'm saying eBay is having to report it for them, so there's other ways to sell that they can get around those two new tax laws. So that's what eBay's concerns are all about. They're like, hey, if it's if it's harder for people to sell, if it's more complicated, less small sellers are going to do it, and that's the bread and butter of our of our revenue because um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, eBay has a, a tiered fee basis so they actually earn a higher percentage on smaller sales and they don't want to lose that that demographic of 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 sellers i get it story number three tencent is opening its wechat groups and will soon allow alibaba's tmall and tabao to display their own external shopping site links removing the obstacle between tencent and its chinese rivals Chinese tech regulators have recently warned internet companies like Tencent and other large companies to stop the practice of what's called 
walled gardens. In other words, keeping everything on their platform. So this is a 10 cents way of, of opening up their walls to um, allow listings from, from their competitors, which is really how it should be. Grow the pie bigger instead of worrying so much about having a larger slice of a smaller pie. And the last story of the week, PayPal's Buy Now, Pay Later service is now going to be available to Wix sellers. The option should automatically appear for merchants with existing PayPal integrations. Wix has been on a run lately with new integrations. They've previously integrated a different BNPL service. They've got a lot of different cryptocurrency integrations. So I, I like the moves. I'm, I'm, I support that. The more options that merchants have for payment providers the better on any platform. And now the final section of my podcast and my newsletter each week is seed rounds and acquisitions. I think this is a really interesting section because I love to see where the money goes. Where the money flows, the innovation follows. So it's interesting each week to see where investors are, are placing their dollars and what we can extract from that. Well, that's, that's up to you and I. So I've got just a few seed rounds and acquisitions for you this week. Let's begin with Pepper, an e-commerce platform for food distributors, raised $16 million in a Series A round, bringing its total capital raised to $20 million. The company will use the funding to accelerate product development within their digital payments and product recommendation engine. Smartling, a cloud translation management and automation platform, raised $160 million. The funding will be used to expand their team and support their product development and marketing efforts. Uniform, a headless composable digital experience platform, raised $28 million in a Series A round. They will use the funds to grow their team and increase capabilities on their platform. Central, a fashion-geared e-commerce platform, raised $10 million euro, and they're going to use that to power up its um, product development and uh, add more people to their team and expand internationally. I love reading about companies like that, like Pepper is an e-commerce platform just for food distributors. Uh, Uniform, or excuse me, Central, I mean, is a e-commerce platform just for fashion companies. Um, I think that's great because obviously with, with a company like Shopify or Big Commerce, huge companies like that, they certainly do a good job uh, catering to everybody through their integrations and, and to their apps. But it's also a lot for businesses to navigate trying to find that perfect app to do the things you want to do when there's a ton of apps. And then, you know, just due to limitations that you can only connect to database via API, you got, you got different things loading from different servers, different features loading from different servers. So it's, it's um, in- integrations have value, but having core features also have value. And so I think it's really interesting, these companies that cater to a specific niche, because then they get to directly provide the the core features instead of having to use third-party apps to power it. So I love reading about those. Next up, Bessemer Venture Partners closed $220 million in new funding to back the next generation of innovators in India. So this is a fund that raised money, not necessarily a company, but they're going to use that money to um, invest in, in other companies. They like to invest in early-stage companies and then grow with those early stage investments through their series a and and so on and so on one green an e-commerce marketplace for pure safe and natural products raised an undisclosed amount in a pre-seed funding round Um, they have currently over eight thousand products across 40 categories 
Why be a retailer when you can be a marketplace? Love it. Marque, an e-commerce aggregator that focuses on Chinese brands in search of global customers, raised $4 million. MDF Commerce, a Canadian software company that develops e-procurement, marketplace, and supply chain SaaS products, acquired a company called Periscope Holdings, which is a Texas-based provider of e-procurement services to the public sector. This deal is valued at $184 million. Teller, a Saudi Arabia and United Arab excuse me, United Arab Emirates-based banking service provider. I'm going to start this one over. <laughs> I messed that one up. Teller, a Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates-based payment service provider, raised $15 million from Cash Free Payments, which is a payments and API banking solutions company, making Cash Free Payments now one of their largest investors. The investment will allow Cash Free to launch in the MENA region via Teller's strong, existing strong presence in payment infrastructure. Convius, an AI-driven e-commerce platform, raised $12 million in a Series A round led by Begin Capital. They will use the funding for their expansion plans, including new offices in the U.S., France, U.K., Germany, and other locations. Anchor, not the podcasting platform that I'm currently recording this podcast on. Anchor is a U.S. startup aimed at solving problems in billing, collections, and payments by automating invoicing and remittance tasks. They raised $15 million in a round co-led by Rapid Ventures and Tal Ventures, which they are going to use to expand their team and hopefully get some new clients. And last up this week, WPP, a British advertising conglomerate, acquired Cloud Commerce Group, also a UK-based technology company that helps brands take their products to market. This company will join the Wonderman Thompson Global Network. And just to end this podcast this week with the stat of the week, I usually start with the stat of the week, but I decided to dive right into this week's top stories, and I'm going to end with the stat of the week. Our stat of the week is the market share of hyperlocal delivery services worldwide is estimated to reach $3.6 trillion by 2027. So, of course, when this, they're talking about hyperlocal delivery services, they're talking about last-mile delivery services, the part where there's your local warehouse and then going from that local warehouse to your door, this type of last mile hyperlocal delivery is what facilitates same day delivery. Not included in this 3.6 trillion market is is I'll say normal delivery. Like for example, going from country to country via FedEx or going from state to state or getting to those tiny warehouses. They're talking about that last mile once they're in your city. Once the product is in your city, it's just a matter of going from the local warehouse to your door. For example, I think it was last week I was talking about Air Asia launching their hyper local last mile leg of their business instead of just bringing the freight from country to country and then letting other companies take over. They've already got the logistics set up, so now they're going to be doing the last mile delivery in that new end of their business. I think it's called uh, Air Asia Express. And so um that's the market that they're talking about. Any way that you can get into this market, whether as an investor or as an ancillary service provider, probably is going to be a good move over the next five years because I don't necessarily see consumer desire for having products delivered to their door in the same day. I don't see that demand decreasing over the next five years. I don't I don't know what your, your thoughts are, but I definitely see that increasing. Not a good look for, for uh, the environment, unfortunately, but hopefully as... We'll have a rebalancing act over the next decade, too. Obviously, like I said, this demand is not going away, 
but it does have a significant environmental impact when we're doing more and oftentimes multiple deliveries per day to the same address. So hopefully we will, um, as, as that problem continues to evolve, solutions will evolve afterwards. Hey, thanks for listening. That's all I've got for you this week. Hope you had a great cyber shopping week, whether you bought products or whether you um, uh, sold them. I hope you have a great, great holiday season for your business or just um, with your families. Check me out at shopafreaks.com if you'd like to subscribe to the weekly newsletter, and I will see you next week.